We'd like to thank the Boston Review for support in bringing together the poets you'll hear in this conversation. The Review covers arts and ideas with lots of poetry in each issue and anytime on their website, bostonreview.net. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. The poet Claudia Rankin is reading some of her signature pieces at my house in Boston. These are microdramas of racial hurt, anecdotes really, illuminating a willful blindness. Often they recount microaggressions, like this one, where the weapons are words. A woman you do not know wants to join you for lunch. You're visiting her campus. In the cafe, you both order the Caesar salad. This overlap is not the beginning of anything because she immediately points out that she, her father, her grandfather, and you all attended the same college. She wanted her son to go there as well, but because of affirmative action of minority something, she's not sure what they're calling it these days and weren't they supposed to get rid of it? Her son wasn't accepted. You're not sure if you are meant to apologize for this failure of your alma mater's legacy program. Instead, you ask where he ended up. The prestigious school she mentions doesn't seem to assuage her irritation. This exchange, in effect, ends your lunch. The salads arrive. Claudia Rankin has done the impossible in her fifth collection. She has seized the awed attention of both poetry world and a common conversation. Her book, Citizen, an American Lyric, was a shock entry on bestseller list this past spring. You're going to hear her reading from it and us talking about it this hour. For formal innovation and fire, Citizen gets likened to T.S. Eliot's breakthrough into modernism, The Wasteland, from 1922, also to Allen Ginsberg's beat classic Howl in 1955. But Claudia Rankin is speaking not to landmarks, but to us. She is tuned stethoscopically to the race conversations we all have with others and alone, our giveaway slips, our blushing retreats. In all of it, she is hearing a whispered undercurrent of brutal and chronic violence that we seem to tolerate. Here's another one of Claudia Rankin's tiny poems of microaggression, where the anonymous second person, you, turns out to be the poet herself. You and your partner go to see the film, The House We Live In. You ask a friend to pick up your child from school. On your way home, your phone rings. Your neighbor tells you he is standing at the window watching a menacing black guy casing both your homes. The guy is walking back and forth talking to himself and seems disturbed. You tell your neighbor that your friend, whom he has met, is babysitting. He says, no, it's not him. He's met your friend, and this isn't that nice young man. Anyway, he wants you to know he's called the police. Your partner calls your friend and asks him if there's a guy walking back and forth in front of your home. Your friend says that if anyone were outside, he would see him because he is standing outside. You hear the sirens through the speakerphone. Your friend is speaking to your neighbor when you arrive home. The four police cars are gone. Your neighbor has apologized to your friend and is now apologizing to you. 
feeling somewhat responsible for the actions of your neighbor, you clumsily tell your friend that the next time he wants to talk on the phone, he should just go in the backyard. He looks at you a long minute before saying he can speak on the phone wherever he wants. Yes, of course you say. Yes, of course. What's funny about this piece is that even though the, the microaggressions in Citizen were collected by interviewing people, this one actually happened to me. I collected this one for myself. And it happened exactly as it said. You know, my husband and I are in a car. We're in traffic in Los Angeles. And if you've been in traffic in Los Angeles, you know that means you are sitting. And so suddenly we're in a situation where the police are coming and we have asked someone to do us a favor by watching our daughter and we feel helpless. And worse than that is the fact that I had a dinner party where I invited my neighbor to meet my friend because I didn't want this to happen. I thought maybe if he saw a black man walking in and out of our house on a street where we are the only black family, or my husband is white, but I'm my daughter and I, that he might think this person is an intruder. And so I had a dinner party and I said, look, here's our friend. He'll be in and out of our house. I just thought it would be nice if you guys met. And it still happened. And so there we were in our car, just feeling helpless. And we all know that you put a black male body and the police together, that's a recipe for anything. And so when I got home, I did the bad thing of saying to him, just go in the backyard to talk on the phone. It was one of those moments where I felt that was a way to protect him, except it was limiting his own freedom. And so I'm really happy when he said to me, no, I can speak on the phone wherever I like. And I was so embarrassed that the heat just rose up to, you know, my cheeks were like flaming. As I said, of course, of course you can. In every encounter, there is that sense that what one wants is to connect with another. The book, in a certain level, is about intimacy. It's about what happens when one body comes up against another. So these microaggressions, for me, are when language ends up throwing the bodies apart, almost as if a single question, a single moment of aggression through language builds a wall, creates a boundary, or reveals a positioning. Then it comes through language. It comes through a few words just thrown out there, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. And they're considered micro because they don't slay you. You can negotiate around them. You move on in your day and yet you carry them. And those are the statements that when you're lying in bed at night, you find yourself having just moments of frustration, mm. that you didn't say something, you didn't counter it in some way, or you're thinking, does it mean what I think it means? Did I say what I Did I say really what I said? What I heard myself say? What do you call somebody 
feeling microaggressed. They're subjects of racism. And I think on both sides. Often the person who says the thing doesn't understand how racism, the structure of racism, the culture that built the racism is affecting them, is affecting their own projection on the black body. This is why anti-black racism is, is purely about projection because it's based on sight. Like often you can have a phone conversation with somebody and everything is fine and the minute you walk in the room, things start flying out of people's mouths based on what they're seeing before them. This really is just about a cultural construction. People have beliefs that come up when they see a body that doesn't look like them. And it has nothing to do with the person in front of them. But the person in front of them has to receive the assault of that language and has to negotiate it. And so the next time the person has to enter that room, they have to brace for more of that, whether or not it comes. And so it becomes a third thing in the room. You know, we're not talking about Fox News. We're not talking about Don Imus. We're talking about friends. We're talking about colleagues. We're talking about quotidian moments, like going to the grocery store, where you don't expect that your day is going to have to include negotiating anti-black racism. And so I thought, what if I backtrack and look at the small ways that racism continues? And perhaps that explains why people, when they end up on juries, when we have something like Katrina happening and people are supposed to be mobilized and are not mobilized, we can understand that there is an underlying acceptance of the lack of recognition of black bodies. And so by looking at these small moments, you know, I'm a great Fordian bit believer in the unconscious as a mm. motivating drive somehow. And so when you begin to see people say these things, even as they understand themselves not to be racist, you begin to see that put in a situation where they have to um, make a decision around the black body, the black body will not matter. Listeners, see if you can place yourself in one more scene of microaggression in the storytelling art of Claudia Rankin. You're in the dark, in the car, watching the black tarred street being swallowed by speed. He tells you his dean is making him hire a person of color when there are so many great writers out there. You think maybe this is an experiment and you are being tested or retroactively insulted, or you have done something that communicates this is an okay conversation to be having. Why do you feel comfortable saying this to me? You wish the light would turn red or a police siren would go off, so you would slam on the brakes, slam into the car ahead of you, fly forward so quickly, both your faces would suddenly be exposed to the wind. As usual, you drive straight through the moment with the expected backing off of what was previously said. It is not only that confrontation is headache-producing, it is also that you have a destination that doesn't include acting 
like this moment isn't inhabitable, hasn't happened before, and the before isn't part of the now, as the night darkens and the time shortens between where we are and where we are going. Coming up, Claudia Rankin's life in poetry, drawing on Whitman, Yeats, Dickinson, and Lowell, among others, and what her fellow poets today hear in Claudia Rankin's Citizen. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. My cue to discover Claudia Rankin this spring came not from the news of Baltimore, then Charleston, and not from the reviews of her book. It was her fellow poets talking shop with us in my living room about what's up in the literary trade. From several angles, they said, Claudia Rankin is where it's at, and her book, Citizen, marks the most interesting redirection of the Walt Whitman public poetry tradition since Allen Ginsberg and Robert Lowell half a century ago. Is we bearded her? Yeah. We had invited five poets to my house in Boston to compare notes on the rising generation. Adam Fitzgerald arrived from New York with the new citizen paperback in his hand. It feels to me like a seminal great poem in the way that Howell and, and the Wasteland were. Adam Fitzgerald went to Boston College. He's a protege of John Ashbery. It's very exciting to see a book like this usher forward into a larger popular audience so immediately. You know, poetry on the New York Times bestseller list and difficult poetry. It not only made a huge impact on the poetry community, which happens from time to time, but it actually went beyond that into the popular culture. Megan O'Rourke is known for her poetry, also for The Long Goodbye, a memoir of her mother. And in fact, some of the pieces of it were really made as videos and very much a book about race in America and about actual news that's happening in the world. There is also an essay about, I believe, Venus and Serena Williams and the way that the Williams sisters have been treated in the tennis world. And there is also a page which simply lists the young men who have been shot by law enforcement officers. Stephen Burt is a trusted critic and guide to contemporary poetry. He teaches at Harvard. So there are all of these essayistic and repertorial and critical and memoiristic and intergenre features to the book, as well as truly amazingly inventive use of the book as a, a form, as a physical object that changes over time. Jessica Bozick is a world traveler who writes post-doomsday prose poems and teaches at Boston University. The subtitle of both Citizen and Claudia's last book, Don't Let Me Be Lonely, is an American lyric, um, which I think is sort of challenging the notion of what lyric poetry should be. We should say that she's long been in conversation with with herself, with an American readership, with poets about what constitutes our kind of core identity. Major Jackson is a black American poet born in Philadelphia. He teaches at the University of Vermont. Many of the stories were collected 
things um, that happened to people she knew. To people right. she knew. That's right. And which I find to be quite powerful. And the yeah. book doesn't let you know. Distinguish. Yeah. If I remember correctly, it uses a you. That's right. That's right. Right. It's a very interesting choice of pronoun. Which goes back to this question of how is that a poem? That you somehow is a very fantastic rhetorical means of flipping it back to you so that there's a connectedness between us. The title is Citizen. It's very specifically about what happens to a certain group of people, i.e. African-Americans. But the you implicates the reader and turns us all into citizens of the book, citizens who are experiencing what happens in the narrations. I know not everyone is convinced or ready to accept this definition or this label of poetry for the book, because I think if you don't think there's any question why someone would call this poetry, then you're not really aware of how radical and innovative it is. Now, there are different textures that go throughout the book, but a lot of it deals with a very plain, flat vernacular. And you say it almost seems anti-poetic, anti-lyric. But by using this very plain language in such a calculated way, you get tremendous traumatic realities. For me, she's almost kind of like the poet of trauma. What's very smart about this book, it never tells you who in the book is a person of color, who in the book is white. There are no name tags. Your imagination has already been trained in this society how to project exactly the subtext of what is going on. The context is eerily familiar, even if you're not someone who suffers from the type of anti-Black discrimination she talks about. It's not about people who are going out there with racist agenda. And don't get me wrong, you know, they exist. But what this book is, you know, people who think they're friends, people who are intimate, people who claim knowledge. And then at that very moment, there is a fracture and a break that is entirely, it can't be bridged, it can't be golfed. And the salad arrives. Yeah, and the salad arrives. (laughs) Yes. The presence of this book in a year of American poetry, its power and its interaction with headline news that is not about poetry has made it hard to talk about anything else. I was thinking about what is the future of this particular book and how does it redefine American poetry? I think it puts a very acute kind of pressure on American poetry to address all areas of our lives. It could be said, it has been said in different ways, that poetry, the tools that make poetry are for describing and making present to others the parts of our lives that cannot be headline news. Citizen is a terrific book, and it's an important book, and it's a subtle book. And it's a book that, even though most of it is in prose and some of it is film scripts, there are very good arguments that this is poetry throughout. But the tools that it uses to be poetic have very little in common with the tools, not the ultimate emotional goals, but the technical linguistic tools that William Butler Yeats would have recognized as poetry. And that's fine. Or even Robert Lowell, even though he wrote prose. Claudia Rankin's most important techniques are not dependent on a familiarity with the techniques that most prior generations of people writing things called lyric poetry used. That's okay. It doesn't make that very good book any worse. But we need to recognize that the history of poetry has changed because education has changed, and the poems that are going to have the biggest impact on the culture right now 
are often going to be the poems and the poets who depend the least on older tools. Well, I also think, Steve, for me, some of this is contingent upon how we define the lyric. And to some extent, I believe, you know, I'll never forget my aunt asking me, what do you call that kind of poetry that doesn't rhyme, right? Like for for her... (laughs) As if there were one kind. Well, in her mind, it was because her education Mm. told her as much. But I really understand the lyric in the context of Walt Whitman and, and that being the song of oneself. And so when I see Citizen and American lyric, I'm thinking about how this is representative of a particular kind of subjectivity in America, not necessarily how it adheres to traditional notions of lyric. And the technology of speech, the technology of poetry, the technology of the utterance has to evolve in that way and be flexible in order to constitute our lived lives today. Claudia Rankin addresses white readers, white citizens, in ways we're not used to. You could wonder, is she preaching a sermon? Is it the stuff of a corporate diversity workshop? Is it poetry? I come to hear at least two voices in Claudia Rankin. Born in Jamaica, graduated from Williams College in the Little Ivy League, now a professor of poetry at Pomona College in California. She's a very modern black American woman whose inner monologue can be all about race. She's also a poet who's all about poetry. But don't call her a political poet any more than you would discount the Irish immortal William Butler Yeats for writing his revolutionary nationalism into his poem, Easter 1916, or for his obsessive love of the elusive Maud Gone. Somebody who was very important to me was Yeats as a poet. I actually went to Sligo, and I studied in the Yeats Summer School and hung out in Ireland for a while. And what I loved about Yeats, even as a 20-year-old student at Williams College at the time, was the way in which the entire self showed up in the poems, so that we had a sense of what the politics of the times were. But we also had a sense that Yeats was pissed at Maud Gone for not loving him and felt that she was making a mess of her beauty and that the poem could contain all of that. It was as much about the times as it was about the feeling in the body of the poet himself. And he was able to construct poems that you know, he's the one who said, let all the stitching and unstitching be for naught if it doesn't seem a moment's thought or something like that. And, and so I love that these seamless poems became a way of looking at a life fully. Another influence would be the poet Robert Lowell. Lowell is fascinating because he was really the heir apparent after Eliot, after the moderns. He was supposed to be the guy, the poet, the American poet. And then after he had his breakdowns and went to hospital and wrote life studies, that changed the landscape of American poetry in the 1950s. Because suddenly one was able to own one's own positioning 
The I became not the we, but the I. I, Robert Lowell, white person from Beacon Hill, I'm pissed at my dad and really kind of questioning my grandparents and wondering about that summer house, you know, and not doing so well with my wife. So stand in my life as it exists and examine it as it exists. And part of examining it was looking at America, looking at the world that made him, the assumptions around whiteness, the assumptions around class, aspirations around achievement and success. Even being a Lowell. And being a Lowell, the burden of being a Lowell. So... I was really thinking about Lowell as I was working on Citizen because I, I wanted to think about pronouns and the use of pronouns. And when Lowell switched over to the first person, that caused a lot of ruckus. <laughs> mm. You know, to give up the collective knowledge and to move into a body that says, this is what it looks like to me, was not transcendent. And transcendent poetry was the realm of the moderns, T.S. Eliot. So it was certainly a book that stood behind Citizen. Claudia Rankin came to Boston this spring for a week of talks and classes at Harvard and elsewhere. At the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston, she spoke to a packed house about what the lyric poem is for her. Well, the lyric traditionally is considered intimate. It's considered the realm of feeling, the realm of affect, and transcendent. It's considered a place one goes above politics. What I wanted to do is bring the lyric back into its realities. That the place of affect, the place of feeling inside the body has everything to do with the construction of the self inside a culture and inside a polis and inside our identities as citizens. So that there is not a transcendent poetry over there that has to do with pastoral wanderings and then the writings of people of color over here, which is the way the poetry community has tried to separate canonically things out. She read a poem that captures some of what Megan O'Rourke called the shared citizenship of the you. In the darkened moment, a body given blue light, a flashlight, enters with levity, with or without assumptions, doubts with desire, the beating heart, disappointment with desires. Stand where you are. You begin to move around in search of the steps it will take before you are thrown back into your own body, back into your own need to be found. The destination is illusory. You raise your lids. No one else is seeking. You exhaust yourself looking into the blue light. All day, blue burrows the atmosphere. What doesn't belong with you won't be seen. You could build a world out of need, or you could hold everything black and see. You give back the lack. You hold everything black. 
you give yourself back until nothing's left but the dissolving blues of metaphor. So poetry for Claudia Rankin has to represent the individual inner world of feeling, and at the same time it's got to reflect what's out in the world. Her closing prose poem at the ICA was a scary sort of cartoon that almost barked, and it got a roar of recognition from her audience. The new therapist specializes in trauma counseling. You have only ever spoken on the phone. Her house has a side gate that leads to a back entrance she uses for patients. You walk down a path bordered on both sides with deer grass and rosemary to the gate, which turns out to be locked. At the front door, the bell is a small round disc that you press firmly. When the door finally opens, the woman standing there yells at the top of her lungs, Get away from my house! What are you doing in my yard? It's as if a wounded Doberman pincher or a German shepherd has gained the power of speech. And though you back up a few steps, you manage to tell her you have an appointment. You have an appointment? She spits back. Then she pauses. Everything pauses. Oh, she says, followed by, oh, yes, that's right. I am sorry. I am so, so sorry. Here's some of what people said afterward. Well, as a, as a black man, it, it, of course, resonates with me very powerfully. And I think what I'm struck by by listening to her is what I see as the inner peace that she has about something that is so disturbing about our humanity. Yeah, I read um, both books, Don't Let Me Be Lonely, and then I also read Citizen. And I think they both really get at like the inner turmoil of being a, I don't know, 35-year-old almost graduating from school, but then also living in the times of like race and what's happening with Black Lives Matter movement. I remember when I finished the book, I kind of, like, I felt ill just because of how much I recognized it. Like, I came out with a stomach ache. It was profound. I think it was hard to identify myself at times, and other times I felt upset for the other. It confused me as to who was thinking, who was feeling, who she was talking to specifically, and I enjoyed that discourse. There's things in here that made me uncomfortable for things that I probably have done. And I don't think we're aware of, of how we interact with other people. We aren't really aware until you fall into one of those holes that she describes in the book. And hopefully the people that made those blunders in the book were able to use that as a point of, whoops, this is I'm interacting with people and becoming aware because of those kind of things. That's how you grow, I hope. I'm debating my reality every day, and I'm debating whether or not I'm recognizing someone else's reality accurately. And it's uh, difficult to uh, move in the world and hear how much is missing. And it's so wonderful to find in Claudia Rankin's work um, that voice and that language that we need. I think for anybody to walk out of here and feel guilt or, or, or something similar to guilt is missing the boat and missing an opportunity. I think the right question to ask is, what do I do next? Coming up, the framework of suffering and mourning uncertainty and anxiety around us today. This is Open Source. 
I'm Christopher Leiden with the poet Claudia Rankin. In our conversation, I wanted to hear what it is in the kaleidoscope of 2015 that her poet's eyes and ears are sensing, the vibrations that journalism and sociology and politics usually miss or avoid. I'm not interested in the facts so much. Hmm. I'm interested in the feeling. That's why I say the unconscious is of interest to me. I'm interested in how facts reside in the body so that, you know, you have the killing of Michael Brown, but what does that do to the black population and what does it do to the white population? What does it mean for Americans that black men are being shot, shot in the back, evidence being planted and documented by police on a daily basis? What does that mean for us as a culture, as a civilized culture with an African-American president? How does that feel? I associate the power of your book and these revelations with something changing in the zeitgeist in the last three, four, five years. It may have something to do with a sort of discovery midterm in Obama time that there are big issues we haven't faced. I associate it, of course, with Ferguson and Staten Island and a number of these police killings. I also associate it with ta Coates' writing about Reparations. Uh, reparations, but also just dealing with a dimension of our feelings, of our everyday experiences. Mm-hmm. Do you associate it with this time, something very restless about the state of race relations in the country? Yeah, I think that um, during Obama's administration, many people had that rhetoric around aspirational achievement for the black body that when you get to the top of the mountain, then you're going to be the president of the United States. And so you get to the top of the mountain, you're the president of the United States, and that body is still subject to the same kinds of racism as it was when you were the porter on the train in 1920. You know, so all of a sudden you realize, oh, it doesn't matter. Well, I wonder, I I, had to challenge that a little bit. I mean... It's one of the most attractive bodies we've ever had in that office. We all know that. He's handsome. Yeah. He's athletic. He can hit the three-pointer still. Uh, he moves with incredible grace. What's the problem then? The problem What's is... What's our problem? Our What's problem, some people's problem? Well, the problem is he's black. You know, he ran on, this is not a black America. This is not a white America. This will be the United States of America. Mm. I think what we're seeing is that, in fact, it is a black America and it is a white America. And this white America is still invested in the annihilation of the black male body. That's a leap, I think. It's I mean, not, it's, no, it may be deeply true, too. but It's a leap if you don't connect it to the whole school-to-prison pipeline. I mean, when you start thinking about how many black men are in prison at no, this point. No, it's horrifying. The mass incarceration, we talk about that too, is incredibly... Systemic. Systemic. It's injurious across the board. It's unjust, and it's beautifully hidden and kept out of uh, the public conversation. How then did we all fall in love with the beautiful black man of Barack Obama at the same time? I think. I think that... We, as a country, believed that if he became president, it would signify something. And so many people went out and voted for him. When he got in office, we began to see, by the actions of the Senate 
and individuals in the Senate, that he would have to wait for his second term an executive order to actually get things done because nobody wanted to play with him. No one wanted to align themselves with the black body, even if it's in the Oval Office. I think we want the symbol of progressiveness. Yeah. And one of the things I've heard since then is like, there were these two white men in this restaurant and they said, we gave them a chance. (laughs) And the one was telling the other that he wasn't gonna vote for him again because he gave them a chance. Voting for Obama had to do with, not Obama, but the posturing of a progressiveness for the American body. But when he himself is in the room, he's still the waiter. You hear the story of people asking him if there's more wine at these dinners and things. So it's the construction of race in this culture has got us by the throat. What I learned from the language is that it's just so bloody fascinating what is revealed in words mm-hmm. among friends right. and how we don't notice it. It must be more than simple, simple racism. I was reading recently in the Times Magazine piece on Toni Morrison. She was horrified when she got to Howard University and discovered the rank in that basically all-black school was by color. Right. What is it in us, do you think, in all of us? Even among blacks, you have a ranking, a hierarchical structure based on skin color because once you're in society, the lighter the skin, the better for X or Y person. And that self-hatred is applied to family members, Mm. to the self, to those around you. It's because we live in an aspirational society where what we want is to get in that room, to acquire, you know, it's part of capitalism. We want to acquire (laughs) And, And in order to get access to that stuff, you have to be accepted. And apparently the way you get accepted is to be blonde and blue-eyed. And the closer you can get to that, the better it is for you. And that's true among white people too. How many white women are dying their hair blonde? I mean, I would love to know the statistics for blonde dye in this country. You know, I watch tennis and every single tennis player has blonde hair. Even Serena. You know, like, what is that all about? Speak of Serena Williams. I mean, she's acutely exposed in a classically white sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she also has the tools to, to fight back like crazy, mm-hmm. uh, not only with her whole being, not mm-hmm. just on the court. How did you get right. into that? And, and what should we be learning there? Well, I, I've, I love watching sports in terms of race because you have something you don't have in real life, which is replay, you know? So in real life, you're just like, wait, did he just say that? Did I mishear? What just happened? But when you watch sports, they're like, did you just see that? Let's just play that for you again. (laughs) And so it's very um, easy to then begin to document and track the modes of aggression against a player like Serena Williams. But what's lovely about Serena, as you say, is that she does fight back. She's all emotion out there. 
And so there's not that kind of author-ash, I'm just going to take it and be bigger than you. Let's not be bigger than anybody. Let's just be human. And that's what you get with Serena. She's like, why'd you do that? (laughs) And, you know, sometimes you're just like, whoa, what's up (laughs) with Serena today? There are moments with Serena where she reacts to things that don't even happen. Like she thinks something bad is happening when in fact what's happening is okay, but she no longer can trust the system that she's working inside of. So she doesn't know how to call it anymore. I'm posting about my own reactions because there's part of me that thinks, you know, welcome to the NFL, all fair and love and war. This is an incredibly competitive set of games we love. People have been throwing at batters even before Jackie Robinson and Mm -hmm. since. Um, It's a tough, nasty world out Mm -hmm. there. And God knows she can take it. That's the glory of the story for me. And show us, educate us along the way. But can she take us? Well, can take it. I mean, what are she, those? She shouldn't have are, to take it. What are those outbreaks? Is that her taking it? You know, like I'm going to take this ball and shove it down your throat. Is that an example of her taking it or her breaking down? I would say more taking it, but. And I would say breaking. Hmm. I would say that explosion out of her was a moment of feeling overwhelmed by a feeling of being assaulted. Hmm. I don't think it's a proud moment for her, the release of that language Hmm. on national television during a Grand Slam. I mean, oftentimes she loses those matches when those things happen. Hmm. I mean, partly she loses them because the score is off because it's slanted towards the other person. And sometimes she loses them because she loses her own self-control, her own focus, because she's, she has this other thing that she has to negotiate, whereas the other player can just play. What do we do with the range of sort of micro-insights that come out of this book about how we are as human animals, starting with Jane Austen, I suppose, I mean, acute observations of the way people relate and don't relate or what they like, don't Mm -hmm. like, say, Mm -hmm. don't say. And it may have to do with men and women or men and men or straights and gays or black and white or Americans and Germans or... Or Japanese and Koreans or... Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, So where's the line between sort of a call for a sort of Selma II around microaggressions, no more microaggressions or something, and observation of a, a social comedy incredibly cautionary observation of just what we're like? Well, I think um, consciousness is is never a thing to devalue, you know? Mm. Because once you see something, if it's for the first time, perhaps, then the second time it has to be intentional. I mean, you can no longer then move forward and say, oh, when I said that thing, I didn't realize the impact it was having. So the next time you say it, you say it intentionally. I love the idea of just saying, I thought about that and I I realized it had so many other implications or hurtful Mm -hmm. consequences, but one can say that and one should, and to all sorts of people. Yeah, what I have encountered is defensiveness, 
is accusation. And it would be nice if we got to a place where we were like, oh, oh, I see what the implication of that could be. And certainly I apologize. You know, that would stop a lot, I think, that sense of mutual recognition. And also people will make mistakes. I make mistakes, you know. The question is not so much will microaggressions happen or not happen. The question is what happens next. Back at the ICA in Boston, Claudia Rankin read from her new book, A Prose Piece, in memory of Trayvon Martin. It's the script of a video she created in collaboration with her husband, John Lucas. My brothers are notorious. They have not been to prison. They have been imprisoned. The prison is not a place you enter. It is no place. My brothers are notorious. They do regular things like wait. On my birthday, they say my name. They will never forget that we are named. What is that memory? The days of our childhood together were steep steps into a collapsing mind. It looked like we rescued ourselves, were rescued. Then there are these days, each day, of our adult lives. They will never forget our way through, these brothers, each brother, my brother, dear brother, my dearest brothers, dear heart. Your hearts are broken. This is not a secret, though there are secrets, and as yet I do not understand how my own sorrow has turned into my brother's hearts. The hearts of my brothers are broken. If I knew another way to be, I would call up a brother, I would hear myself saying, my brother, dear brother, my dearest brothers, dear heart. On the tip of a tongue, one note following another is another path another dawn, where the pink sky is the bloodshot of struck, of sleepless, of sorry, of senseless, shush. Those years of and before me and my brothers, the years of passage, plantation, migration, of Jim Crow segregation, of poverty, inner cities, profiling, of one in three, two jobs, boy, hey boy, each a felony accumulate into the hours inside our lives where we are all caught hanging. The rope inside us, the tree inside us, its roots, our limbs, a throat sliced through. And when we open our mouth to speak, blossoms, oh blossoms, no place coming out. Brother, their brother, that kind of blue. Claudia Rankin seems cast to play poet laureate if there is to be a second racial awakening in our era, not about laws and rights this time, but about feelings, an often invisible internal bleeding behind headline events. In a piece for the New York Times Sunday Magazine this summer, 
Just after the massacre of black church people in Charleston, South Carolina, Claudia Rankin wrote that for African-American families, this living in a state of mourning and fear remains commonplace. A sustained state of national mourning for black lives is called for, she wrote, in order to point to the undeniability of their devaluation. The hope is that recognition will break a momentum that laws haven't altered. In our conversation, she made clear that though she's not a utopian, she's still a hopeful person. I think we will always fail each other in some way. I just would hope that we would fail each other in a different way. That to be caught in this web of racism, it's been going on so long. So I would love that whatever failure I'm involved with or we're involved with come 50 years from now, it's not this one. Sounds like Beckett's fail better. Fail better. Fail better. But I think failing is failing, so fail other. (laughs) Fail in another way. I think, Citizen, the book helps. You help. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks to our circle of talkative poets, Stephen Burt, Jessica Bozick, Major Jackson, Megan O'Rourke, and Adam Fitzgerald, and to Jim Donahue, who recorded them beautifully. Thanks especially for the support of the Boston Review, a vibrant hub for new poetic voices, and to the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. Thanks also to Miles Davis and Bill Evans for Blue and Green, from the Kind of Blue album that Claudia Rankin said would be her Desert Island disc. Check our website for her responses to our open-source Proust questionnaire. And thanks to the other musicians we heard, Charlie Hayden and Hank Jones, Kamasi Washington, and Thundercat. Our conversation was produced by Pat Tomeno and Connor Gillies, with help from Max Larkin and Grant Holub mormon George Hicks is our engineer, Mary McGrath is our executive producer. Leave a comment, please. And look for more good talk about arts, ideas, and politics at radioopensource.org. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time for Open Source.